Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the Professional Book Nerds Podcast. This is Joe. Hi, hello. Before we get into today's episode, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We want to hear from you. Send us your thoughts. You can send an email to professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And then, of course, our socials, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok are all the same at ProBookNerds. With that, we are going to get into the third and final part of our Twilight retrospective. Emma, are you ready? I'm so ready. I'm so excited. We're back to talk about the rest (laughs) of the Twilight stuff. I am so excited. And I guess, I guess I should say it's, it's the rest of the Twilight stuff in the sense of like everything you and I have read. Um, But we are not covering the Twilight graphic novels, uh, mainly because I forgot about them. The one who regularly reads graphic novels forgot they existed uh, because as a child, I feel like they haunted me because the art is, it's not my preferred graphic novel art style. I always found it a bit uh, creepy from the covers. Um, But if I, if I read it in the future, I'll, I'll uh, report back. Very specific. Very specific. It's very like, oh yeah, it's very like pre-2010 vibe. Uh, America trying to go by way of like Japanese art style, but failing miserably. Um, I I mean, no shade. There is clear talent there, but it just just wasn't for me. Yeah, same. Wasn't for me. (laughs) And I have a weird thing about like certain animation honestly like claymation terrifies me if that gives you any (laughs) insight so I'm quite picky about the visuals because I don't know why I get easily scared just spooked Spooked, (laughs) they are a bit creepy it's like Jack Skellington adjacent like yeah nightmare before Christmas the big the big eyes thing I think as well Mm -hmm. is a very particular style yes there is something very specific about it So today, y'all, we have two pieces uh, left to talk about. We are going to take these out of canonical order, um, Mm -hmm. and we are going to go back into our reading order. So first we will talk about Midnight Sun, and then we will wrap up with Life and Death, even though Life and Death came out first, I believe, unless you're looking at like back in the day, what Stephanie wrote and never published, but Um, Right. So the back of the book description for Midnight Sun, here we go. Number one bestselling author Stephanie Meyer makes a triumphant return to the world of Twilight with this highly anticipated companion, the iconic love story of Bella and Edward told from the vampire's point of view. When Edward Cullen and Bella Swan met in Twilight, an iconic love story was born. But until now, fans have heard only Bella's side of the story. At last, readers can experience Edward's version in the long-awaited companion novel, Midnight Sun. 
This unforgettable tale, as told through Edward's eyes, takes on a new and decidedly dark twist. Meeting Bella is both the most unnerving and intriguing event he has experienced in all his years as a vampire. As we learn more fascinating details about Edward's past and the complexity of his inner thoughts, we understand why this is the defining struggle of his life. How can he justify following his heart if it means leading Bella into danger? In Midnight Sun, Stephanie Meyer transports us back into a world that has captivated millions of readers and brings us an epic novel about the profound pleasures and devastating consequences of immortal love. An instant number one New York Times bestseller, an instant number one USA Today bestseller, instant number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, IndieBound bestseller, Apple Audiobook August must listens pick. People do not want to just read Meyer's books. They want to climb inside them and live there from time. I couldn't not say that for like the 85th time because that's included on all of the reprints of the jackets now. Anyway, that was Midnight Sun in my best summer blockbuster announcer voice. <laughs> I love it. You did a very good job. Maybe not my best summer blockbuster announcer voice, but an attempt at one. <laughs> but we'll take it. It's early in the morning. Thank you. I appreciate that kindness. So Midnight Sun, if you didn't get it from that description, this is Twilight, but from Edward. I have so many thoughts. <laughs> So many thoughts. So many thoughts. I just want to start real quick with, this is a long one. This is a very, it's like double the book. It's like almost 700 pages. It's like 650 something. So I got through all of these via audiobook. I listened to every Twilight wow. book. Um, Twilight itself is about 12 hours at the normal one time speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I listened to, listened to all of them about one and a half, just, just to right. get through. Um, yeah. but Midnight Sun is a little over 24 hours. So truly double in length, double the time. And I think what's interesting, so I'll dive right in, but the back, the backstory for Midnight Sun is that it was Edwards POV. Stephanie Meyer originally wrote this like back in 2008 or something and was like working on it. It leaked on the internet in like certain parts. Fans went wild. Mm -hmm. And I think that really put her off from wanting to publish it because it was kind of ruined. Like people leaked the chapter there. It was a whole to do. And so then the story sat dormant for like 12 years until it was finally released as Midnight Sun in its entirety in 2020. This is not for the casual fan. Like if you've never read Twilight, if you, this, you don't, you don't need to read 700 pages of (laughs) Edward's internal monologue and like the, like nothing, Yeah. the, the time that this book takes, like you don't get any action until like 300 pages in, like, yeah, because his internal monologue. I think we jokingly said when I was, ta- when I was first reading this was for every one line Bella has, Edward has eight. Yeah. Because he just, and I think what's interesting is so like, you can tell in his version that he's think the way he thinks things through, I think does point to the fact that he is the one with more life experience. Obviously like he's the one that's more mature for every thought that Bella has every observation where she's like, his hair's Brown. He's sitting mm. there like her hair was the blah, blah, blah. Like it's a lot more. <laughs> it's in a lot depth. of 
detailed descriptions of scent of sight it's um uh, of thoughts that uh, other people are having because that's that added layer he can read everybody's you know mind he can hear everything and so we just get a lot more detail and i yeah. i enjoyed this hate to say it i really did enjoy this book <laughs> when it came out in 2020 because you get some of those details mm -hmm. and insights into the vampires. Like there's the whole section to kick off the book. The first time we see um, Edward in Midnight Sun is that infamous cafeteria scene on Bella's first day where he overhears that group, Jessica, Eric, whatever, talking about the Cullens, telling them, you know, telling Bella who these people are. And that's his first interaction with her. And so for him, you get the observation that like Alice is making an effort to blink. Mm -hmm. Rosalie is crossing her legs. Like they're all trying to be human. And you get those added details that you just obviously don't get from Bella's perspective because she doesn't know. Nobody knows until a lot further on in the story. Right. And I just think it's interesting. I don't know what else to say. It's just. I think it was really fascinating. Right. Exactly to that point. I think the most exciting part of this book is that after four whole books, we actually have some character development. <laughs> like, and this is technically book one. Now I, I will say, so like having, when I listen to these, I listen to them all back to back. Um, one through life and death and it took me about a month to get through all of that audio because it's just a lot of hours the the toughest thing about that for me just in my experience as the one reading them for the very first time and going like whole ham through all of them was that I basically had to listen to Twilight three separate times so I listened to Twilight then I listened to Midnight Sun which is just the flipped version of Twilight and then I listened to Life and Death which is we'll get into a little bit, but it is twilight, but every, everyone is gender swapped. Midnight Sun, I, I'm with you. Like, I think this was the closest I had to the feeling of what you had when this came out in 2020. Like, this is when I felt like, wow, she really did that for us. You know, like I have, I have always been a Stephanie Meyer dissenter. I have always been against Twilight, having never touched any of it. And then having gone through all of them and to get into Midnight Sun, I was like, she did this for us. Like, this is a serve. Like, that's where I was left. And it only works if you have read all of the four previous books. Like, you can't just pick this one up and be like, this is where I'm going to start. If you haven't read Twilight recently, like, you at least have to have Twilight under your belt so you can read Midnight Sun. But I think this actually makes Twilight good. This makes the whole series great. And I feel like I said the same kind of thing with Brie Tanner, that it really makes you think of some things that were either alluded to or just missed entirely it, while she was writing that they kind of call back the idea in Brie Tanner that um, Jane was there already, that, you know, Jane was a was totally fine sending these uh, these newborns to kill the Cullens and, you know, kind of make their own problem solving method there. Uh, the same thing with Midnight Sun. You are seeing the struggles that these vampires are going through. I, I guess it makes them a little more sympathetic if you weren't already sympathetic to the Cullens. 
because you're kind of like, oh, they they are choosing to be human or have this kind of moral compass and the effort it takes to live with humans and, and all of these different things. Um, so this was very fascinating. Yeah. I 100% agree with that. I think what this does for me is it almost makes Twilight more interesting. Yes. Because it fills bad. in it fills in some gaps obviously when Edward is not in Bella's mm-hmm. sight. You're like, "Well, where did he go?" That time when they first meet and then he disappears for like 6 days, you get insight into where he went. You can see him off with the Denali coven you can see the tension between him and one of his you know quote-unquote cousins and you're absolutely right Right. that's my first thing was just my first thought upon listening to this was oh my gosh yes the blanks are starting to be filled in the parts that make their I know this is a bad relationship we, yeah. I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say like, if you're reading yeah. this for fun, great. Don't model anything in your life after this. This is toxic and bad, but right. <laughs> as a story, fantastic. And this is what the, the whole was missing. This is what makes Twilight great and exciting. Well, and because I think what's interesting is obviously like we've seen everything from Bella's perspective. So like when she first meets Edward in biology class and he like looks like an absolute lunatic because he's we know later he's having a reaction to her scent to her blood whatever from Bella's perspective that's obviously a super weird interaction you're like this is so bizarre but when you get it from his perspective you can see like the the detailed descriptions of how he'd kill her and the entire class to get away with it the intensity with which this experience hits him which is obviously missing from Bella's perspective. Like she walks in and he makes a face and he's like gripping the desk and being an absolute weirdo. Um, but from my his favorite perspective, way to say, he just thinks she's stinky because that's all the perspective. Right. She's that's got. all you have. That's like all you get. But from him, it's like, he says like, it hits him like a battering ram. He wants to like, he's suddenly his instincts. He's a vampire. Like it all clicks into place. And I just think this context from him is so much more interesting. And I know people are like, Twilight's about Bella. It's about Bella, whatever. But I would argue that like this made it. About both of them. Yeah, about both of them. And it made her almost more interesting to me. Oh, a thousand percent. Midnight Sun made me interested in Bella. It made me care about Bella. I think of our last conversation about Twilight I was like "Mm, no she's bad not interested don't get it but now we can see because I I I understand how the perspective is like she's full of doubts because at that age who isn't and he sees past all of that we understand the intrigue of not being able to understand her mind we can like see how that's actually frustrating to him because he can hear everyone else and in so many like the situation uh, when she goes to she goes dress shopping and she's off to the bookshop and she almost gets you know assaulted in the alleyway is actual fear now comes across because all of the ways that he's used to um, saving the day or like getting through life to get his way revolve around that ability of listening to people he can't listen 
to Bella's brain and find where she's at. He has to try to pick through who heard her, who saw her last, and try to find her that way. Yeah, and I just think, you know, from Edward's perspective, knowing what he's going through, knowing how much he's fighting his, like, predatory instincts as a vampire, I think lends it a little bit to, like, there's that whole trope of, like, I'm not good for you. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm a bad boy or like, I am not a good person or whatever. And I think some of that, you know, is like, it's a, it's too aloof to Bella and you kind of get annoyed from her perspective when he's like, I'm trying to stay away, but I can't stay away. And when you see it from his side, you understand more why he's struggling so much. Right. You tried to put her first. And say, like, I know that if I am in her life, she is in for all of these challenges, all of these things, potential risks, danger, whatever. I just think it gives it more, it's more interesting and it's not so annoying. Yeah. And it goes from being like predatory to predator. It goes from being like, that's the thing that all men say Mm -hmm. to like, (laughs) oh no, he is actually... Uh, like a killer uh this is kind of a killer bella uh it's it's it becomes real at that point compared to before when it's just like oh yeah no we've all heard that line right where it just sounds like he can't make up his mind and he's like i like you but i don't want to be with you i i'm not good for you blah 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 but i think when you have it you have more of his internal struggles it makes it less obnoxious because i I tend to get annoyed when they're like, no, you're better off without me. Like, I'm only going to hurt you. Right. Yeah. That kind of storyline. You're like, what on earth? But like, then when you see from his point of view it, that he would kill an entire classroom full of people just to taste her blood, that's when you go like, oh, no, there are stakes here. <laughs> right. Because, for, yeah, for some reason, from when you read it from her perspective, you don't, it doesn't seem real. Like the gravity of the situation isn't there. And I think when you do have it from his perspective, you're like, oh wait, like vampires are dangerous. Like this isn't the movie, like we're just sparkling in the sun. And like, it is like, you know, it brings it a little bit more to the forefront. Whereas obviously from Bella's perspective, it's like the least interesting thing for her about Edward. And you're like, no, but No, but top of mind. Top of mind. Well, and also when you have four books that she can't comprehend what he's going through. And then when she finally turns, she is the only vampire that ever existed to have self-control as a newborn. It completely kills any idea that he was ever struggling because she's immediately like, yeah, I almost ripped that mountain climber to shreds, but I thought of my life and I was fine. Like, (laughs) yeah, exactly. And I think the way that we see these things from Bella's perspective, even like Jacob and the wolves, like those are all very inherently dangerous. And she just like, for whatever reason is just so unfazed that it just, the danger doesn't come across for any of these situations. She is so unconcerned with her own safety and well-being, which I know sounds like an Edward thing to say. Yeah, but, no, but, but it's I, so I, true. I, I mean, like, I know book two is is kind of like the illusion of self-harm and of, you know, the, the threat of 
someone taking their own life. Um, but the whole series is is kind of that because when she moves to Forks, she has once again put someone else before herself. She has put her mother's happiness before herself and she is resigned that she will be in Forks until she's no longer anyone's burden. Yeah. And I, I think all of these things along the way, like her... I, I think as much as she wants excitement and wants to be a part of someone's life, I think she also doesn't care what happens to her at this point. So mm-hmm. whether it's the vampires or the wolves, someone is either going to make her life so much better or no longer a problem for her. And I think that's something that no one's really talking about. Yeah. I think that's such a good point that she really doesn't, she doesn't put herself first in any circumstance, whether it's her emotional well-being, her physical well-being. And I think from this story, Edward is very much trying to put her first. And that's something that you're kind of missing. And from she her struggles with that. Right. Mm-hmm. And she and really I know struggles we, with it. And I know we can all be empathetic to um, certain ways that people express love or affection that make us uncomfortable because maybe it brings out our insecurities or highlights things we're uncomfortable with, or it's something we haven't experienced before. But I think in this situation, everything that's presented to Bella is something that she's never experienced before. And it makes her incredibly uncomfortable. And she's always trying to shift focus. Yeah. Cause, and I think from Bella's perspective, a lot of the story is like, Edward can't like me. Like, what does he see in me? I'm so ordinary. I'm so plain, blah, blah, blah. And from his perspective, you do see like after he overcomes the hurdle a little bit of his instincts of wanting nothing to do with her because of like what it brings out in him, you do see how quickly he is invested in her and how quickly he falls for her. And that's missing from the other perspective where it just kind of comes across as like, intensity and like obsession a little too quick yes and I think from from having the added context it really does help I mean it's again like this is not the greatest relationship this is not what you should model but it does kind of help bring it a little bit more on even footing because you see that they do kind of fall for each other a lot more simultaneously than I think is portrayed in the original story but what probably makes it also a little worse is that we still go back to the fact that like the way that we see Bella's perception is of a 17 year old and then uh oh Edward's perception is of someone who is 110 or 117 however old he is and that's where you go like yikes it is bad again (laughs) right he does just have like he's an adult and she's right she's a he's a grandpa like right and so you can kind of see like the way he processes things the way he thinks he's quite deliberate and quite intense and I do think that that perspective comes across better in Midnight Sun but like to be fair she is a 17 year old so when things are a little bit more simplistic or just she's immediately into her obsession with him like that's how you are as a teen right Now, one thing I wanted to also call out that we really benefit from in Midnight Sun 
and I know we've alluded to it, but is the way that the family, the coven actually seems like a family. We get from this perspective so much more in the sense of protection, in the sense of what is important. And there are things that like, I wish um, she wouldn't have been so afraid from this and like shied away from this experience uh, because I think it really would have helped to shape the other books. So like, um, Bella shows us and is aware how close the Cullens are and that they function as a unit. But I think from her perspective, at least my interpretation of it is they appear a little more like a well-oiled machine. You know, they all know what roles to play and how they serve one another. But when you see it from Edward's point of view, you actually see, uh, and I know we talked about family dynamics earlier, but, and that they were the only like healthy family we get to see but they actually look like a family from Edward's point of view his relationship with all of his siblings his relationship with Alice is actually as close as it appears to be because they they feed off of each other Alice sees the future but I don't think what I ever really realized was that Edward sees it too pretty much immediately if Alice is seeing the future so is Edward and that's a big thing that I wanted to bring up when we were talking earlier of like, they were so close because immediately Alice sees all of the potentials with Bella that either she's going to ruin their life in Forks if Edward can't control himself, or she's going to be her sister. And this constant running through of every situation really shows how much Alice is able to care. Like we see her caring and her compassion throughout, but this makes her so much more compassionate. Yeah. And that having that insight from Edward, like he knows so much sooner that like the writing's on the wall almost that Bella's going to be an important part of his life in some regard, whether it's like his downfall in forks or like the love of his life and becomes a crucial member of his family. Like he knows that from the get-go because of Alice. And I think that's a huge part that helps you fill in like why he's so immediately invested in her. Because again, like from his or from Bella's point of view, it's weird that he's so adamant, like I must be away from her. And then he's like, well, okay, well, we're in love. Well, I can't, I can't change anything. (laughs) Alice has run all the situations and either I kill you or we're together forever. And like, so get, get seeing how he gets to that, it makes it so much more interesting and less yes. like, like less flip-flop where he's just like, oh, wait, JK, I'm, I'm into you. Right. When you see Alice running every situation, when you see that his goal was to always try to prevent her from turning, mm-hmm. but that, that was only like one out of a hundred situations that she remains human really just really fascinating uh I think a really cool uh piece there to kind of play with the thought of like this whole time he is constantly crunching the numbers and that everything he does like the turmoil that he faces when you just look at the main series of books he like you said looks flip floppy he looks basic boring afraid of commitment like he looks all of these bad things Mm -hmm. and then when you see what he's struggling with you can sympathize it doesn't necessarily make him any better but you can actually see where he's coming from that he is just trying to keep her alive yeah and I think what's interesting as well 
to talk about that's reflected in the, the way that this is written is she, Stephanie Meyer started this in the early 2000s. Obviously Twilight came out in what, 2000, 2005, early 2000s. By the time Midnight Sun came out, it was 2020. So things had changed like as a society, you know, when Twilight first came out, I don't know that we all necessarily saw the relationship as problematic. It just fit the theme of early 2000s YA exactly. romance. Exactly. And so I think the way that things have changed is a little bit acknowledged in Midnight Sun because you can see that conflict of character for Edward. It does give it some additional perspective, I think, that it, it just makes it seem a little bit less I don't want to say unrealistic or like shallow or talk to- like toxic. It's not a good relationship. Like we're emphasizing it's not a good relationship. You should not model your relationship off of Bella and Edward. But I do think you're right. It just gives it that added context. And I, I think and hope maybe that that was Stephanie Meyer's attempt to not fix some of the issues with Twilight, but Just like, like gently course correct to be like, I don't know if I had, the, it was a good way to be like, I don't know if I had the tools then to do right. what I wanted to do. And now right. with a little more experience, I've at least be, been able to see, I don't know, hopefully she saw some of the errors of her ways in the past and that this, this does correct or fix some of that because it also doesn't read. I mean, <laughs> I could give plenty of opinions on her writing ability, but like it does not read as elementary as her earlier works do. It does not have the same feel as mm-hmm. Twilight in the sense of like her writing has clearly evolved. Yeah. So she didn't just take that original doc and go, cool, I'll just finish it finally. She actually took the time to go through, edit, clean up make some changes. Yeah. I think it does show a little bit of an evolution and a little bit of growth because right. The readers of twilight in 2020 and the readers of twilight in 2005, not, it's not the same. No. And hopefully some of those readers from 2005, uh, you know, found their own, their own path in their own, you know, way and reading it now to be like, ah, I used to love this is, is, uh, is something else. Exactly. I do want to call out one last thing that I love about this perspective of Midnight Sun is that we, to kind of go back to family, we get to see the work that everyone in the family is doing to protect Bella, that this isn't just a commitment on Edward's part, that they immediately make her basically one of theirs from the jump. And the scene I specifically want to call out is the baseball scene. Um, The best scene, no matter how you look at Twilight, is the baseball scene, whether it's the book or the movie, you get through all of that and finally something's happening. But shade aside, what I want to call out is Jasper. The thing I find most fascinating in Midnight Sun is during, is how Jasper is able to use his abilities during the baseball scene. And that no one ever talks about this. And because she wrote this so much later, we never see Jasper actually use his abilities in this way again. Uh, And I wish we could have. So if you haven't read Midnight Sun during the baseball scene, the uh, truly the only thing that betrays them is the breeze. Because this whole time we've got Emmett, 
hitting the bat against the ground. So this is where they all come into play. They've all taken these specific positions to protect Bella and nothing is as it seems. Maybe it wasn't Emmett because maybe Emmett was more up front to be intimidating, but someone is hitting a bat against the ground to cover Bella's heartbeat. Like they are consistently tapping against the ground. So that's the sound that picks up via vampire hearing over her heartbeat. And Jasper is using his powers in a unique way. So instead of where he's usually kind of like incepting people with feelings to be like, oh, you're calm. Oh, you're not anxious. Oh, you're sleepy, which is all we ever see him do in the main line of the series. He is instead um, pushing out that he is incredibly boring. So that Laurent and the whole group don't want to pay attention to him. It's very much the like, oh, you don't want to look over here. We are so boring. So he's protecting himself, Alice, and Bella. And the whole thing is like, I'm boring. You don't want to see me. You don't even want to look over here. And he pushes them away entirely. And I think that is in so incredibly cool. Like, what a concept. And I know she, like, toyed with that in Brie Tanner, that there was the one whose power was entirely that, like, he was either yucky or you could perceive him, but like you get to see, like we see them all go into action in, in Twilight, but it's mainly after the baseball scene that they all feel like they're operating as a group. But from the moment Bella is in danger, the entire family closes ranks. So like I said, the heartbeat and then Jasper's really cool use of his, his ability. Yeah. And what's so fascinating. I love that scene too, from their perspective, because like Jasper plays such a big part where he's like almost forcing them to notice Emmett and notice his muscles and how big he is. And like, he's distracting and over there in order to kind of protect Bella and then have everyone else like be so boring to look at, you know, and like, look at Rosalie's beauty, look at Emmett. He's so huge. Oh, I'm Jasper. I'm so dull. Even though he's like probably one of the most lethal of the group I just that whole scene like is so good I agree where like they're all stepping up to the plate in some way Carlisle is being charming and charismatic and like I'm so friendly look at me let's chat like focus on um you know my friendliness and like ignore everything else that's going on I really do love that family dynamic is so present in that scene because from Bella's perspective it's 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 she's just scared and it's boring I mean it's it's boring in that it's very straightforward yeah it's very straightforward like she's scared she's alarmed she doesn't know what to do she's just going to cling to Edward she's she's surrounded by predators anything going on exactly but you see from Edward's perspective just based on his you know instincts and his you know mind reading abilities and all these other things you see that every single person immediately clicks into some type of role to protect her and yeah it's just so cool because you don't get all of that specificity from her perspective even if you know they all kind of close ranks around her just this added detail of like using Jasper's influence Emmett like using his strength Rosalie really leaning into her beauty and her brains and stuff to keep everybody focused on everything else. Carlisle being so charming. Um, It's so interesting that this scene 
you just look at it from a totally different way, this pivotal, pivotal scene. To your earlier point, this really makes Twilight good. Like this really makes the whole series amazing. Or this at least makes Twilight amazing. I don't know. I find in a couple ways it harms the other books. Um, Yeah. And I lied. There's no way that can be the final thing because how could I forget? One of the (laughs) things I'm most grateful for in this book is we get to see the scene that Alice makes to cover up Bella's attack. We get to see all the work that she puts in at the end. And of course, one of the largest plot holes I have there. But um, so (laughs) we get we get through the baseball scene. We all know how Twilight works. Um, I I guess if you made it this far, spoiler alert, uh, we're going to spoil a 20 year old series. (laughs) Right. (laughs) if you're you're on if you're this far in episode three yikes yeah (laughs) but so uh they're in arizona Uh, i forgot about this yeah it's so crafted how could we move on without talking about this so in um twilight it said offhand that uh, Alice had made such a convincing setup that Bella could probably sue from their false story. And you, in Twilight, you kind of laugh about that. At least I did. My experience was, it was kind of like laughable. And when you read this, it's traumatic. Yeah. And you don't really think about, you don't really think about it. Like Bella has her whole thing at the ballet studio and then like the, the cover story you know, to her mom, like, oh, she fell through a window at our hotel. And you don't think further of it. You're like, oh yeah, totally believable. Nobody would investigate. But actually. But wait a minute. (laughs) Wait a second. So the first thing that I want to bring up is my favorite plot hole of them all. Um, You can talk adrenaline all you want, but uh, the Cullens steal a car to get Bella to the hospital. And in that car, is every vampire with them. So that is um, Edward, Carlisle, Jasper, Emmett, and Alice. Now, once also, if you recall, Bella is bleeding out. Like, yes, Carlisle has closed her up, but she is still covered in blood. She is still bleeding. Like they have to clean up the car that they stole. Um, But somehow Emmett can be in this car. I'm sure there are a thousand different answers and I'll accept all of them, but he literally almost massacres her over a paper cut. How is he in the car with them? I just have to throw that out there. I don't need an answer, but like, how? I think that's fair because it does seem like sometimes their reactions to blood are, are so just like disparate. Like sometimes they're totally chill and then other times they like can't help themselves. And it's, it's interesting when it, it kind of picks and chooses like who's vampire. Yeah. But what I think also is interesting, I'm going to go back to your point about how like Alice is creates this elaborate cover story. There's a part where they're trying to get everything organized where she calls Rosalie and says, I need you to rent a flatbed tow truck or buy one. Like you're going to get Bella's truck and bring it to Seattle and like all these pieces mm-hmm. where you're like, whoa, wait, there is, is so much so that elaborate. happens in vampire time, basically, because yeah. in a matter of 
minutes. So yeah, let's go through all of this. They have (laughs) stolen a car to get Bella to the hospital. Mm -hmm. They had to pick, you know, the fastest car possible. They are at one point, I don't think it, I think it was the car to get them to the ballet studio that they stole, uh, that they could smell the NOS in, uh, which come on fast and the furious, but literally they picked it because they could smell that it was, you know, not quite street legal. They basically have a police car chase to get to the ballet studio. And then they beat their way through traffic in this stolen vehicle. Alice is calling to right, get Bella's truck where it needs to be so that their story lines up for Charlie. Um, she's also like borrow. She's then trying to see every iteration of the future to make it work. She takes Jasper's watch when her first vision, she doesn't know what time it is. So she has to check into the hotel, tell the attendant that the time on the clock is wrong. She's actually checking in at this time to make the story line up. Then she has to set up the scene, uh, but she's also got to steal blood. Once again, so like once again, Alice has to walk away in the ballet studio because she starts to get woozy over Bella's blood and scent, but then she can steal blood bags from the hospital uh, to set up this scene. So yeah, Emma, hit us, hit us with the scene. Hit us with some more of the elaborateness. Where, and this is where I do think you really get to see how impressive Alice is. Because she thinks through the entire thing and is able to see all of the outcomes. She knows that she needs to call the airline to get Emmett on the plane. She can see like which hospital she needs to drop them off at because Carlisle has a contact who can get him in and vouch for him in the situation. Like she can Right. She can see like we're in a stolen car that's linked to a giant pile up on the highway, but let's go grab a different car that's close enough to the rental that I'm going to get after the fact to cover my tracks. Like she's going to go to the hotel. She gets rooms on a certain floor. She like has the whole thing planned out. You go through it step by step. She does so much work to make it picture perfect. So much work. And then at the end of that chapter um, with Edward, it's like Jasper pulls up to the emergency room, keeping his distance from the camera on this side of the entrance, looking for our shade. I adjusted my grip on Bella and prepared to go through it all again for the first time. So they've already fully run through the entire scenario in Alice's mind that Edward is seeing. He sees how all the pieces fit before they even get to the emergency room. And you're like, what? That's so cool. They've all basically, well, both Edward and Alice have done this a hundred times before they actually go to do it. Exactly. And I think it's so fascinating that you see all of that detail, how everything comes into place with like meticulous planning. And then it's like, and now let's actually go through all this. Right. Now let's hope that we don't mess anything up in the perfect plan that you picked. And it entire, like their whole life entirely relies on Alice's ability to see the future, of course, aside from all of their money, um, and Edward's ability to also see the future and then help Alice keep the rest of the gang on track. Like they have, they are both entirely responsible for everyone's safety. Yeah, it's just really cool to see the detail and the thought. And I'm sure like 
this is an opportunity for Meyer to go back in and give us these cool pieces that were kind of glossed over from Bella's perspective because she was unconscious. She was unconscious. She was in the hospital. She so can't why would operate she... on their frequency? Yeah, right. To to kind of get that added layer of detail is just kind of cool, and it makes it seem a little bit more fantastical. Because duh, these are vampires. This is a wild circumstance. It does just make it that much more, you know. And like fantastic, which I think is the point. I think that is the the key point that like ties all of our ideas back together. That the reason this makes Twilight good is because it actually makes it magical, fantastical. Like this is the this is what makes it actually something. Like this is actually a fantasy love story, and it doesn't like this stops minimizing the other characters everything else minimizes everyone's skills and ability in favor of making boring Bella be boring in the front seat yeah because I think that's so true from Bella's perspective she's so unbothered by everyone being extraordinary that we don't get that insight into like oh yeah they run fast or they're glittery but it's so much more than that. And I think that this is when Meyer is able to explore in detail these fantastical creatures that she's created. And it is cool to see that next level where instead Bella's just like, no, they're just like people, but fast. Like they're just more pretty than everyone else. Like I, I think it's cool. It also helps you understand why R.O., cares about Edward and Alice why he wants them when you can finally see the world spinning as you look at the future a hundred times to make sure you don't mess it up you can go oh yeah that that's why this is important oh you can read someone's mind entirely without having to touch them oh this is why all of this is incredibly impressive and why the Cullens actually pose a threat yeah, I just, it, I do just think it's really cool and it adds another layer to Twilight that we're definitely missing. It really puts the abilities at the forefront and that's what's cool. And when you put the abilities at the forefront, it also brings out their personalities. This mm-hmm. is, that's the other thing. It's not so sanitized. They all actually are people with feelings <laughs> and yeah, gifts. Like, I know she's the main character, but in my opinion, Bella's like the most boring. Oh yeah, she's the. Least I know she thinks she is the least interesting, and I and agree. she is. I, she's right. You're not wrong, Bella. I won't You're gaslight you. Um, unlike her counterpart, in what we'll talk about in a little bit. Uh, oh I gosh, find, I find him to be a little more interesting, but only vaguely. Uh, before we do that, I have. Stephanie Meyer's website pulled up right now. And I want to uh, just just read some things. So there's this just, it's so disparate because the cover doesn't blend in with the page, but the page is really beautiful. It's covered in pomegranates. It was released August 4th of 2020. And then she's got this cute little letter to us. So dear friends and readers, first of all, I hope that you and your families are safe, healthy, and in a good place. That's the main thing. 
Second, I'm happy to announce that Midnight Sun is finally very close to ready and will be in bookstores August 4th. I hope this announcement doesn't seem ill-timed. I really considered delaying the release until the world was back to normal. However, one, who knows when that will be? And two, you have waited long enough, much longer than long enough, actually. I don't know how everyone else is coping, but right now books are my main solace and happiest escape. I hear that every time I get to talk to patrons, how much they love Libby and how it got them through the pandemic. Um, that's me, not Stephanie. Uh, personally, I would be nothing but delighted if one of my favorite authors announced something new for me to read. Uh, so I hope this announcement gave you some pleasure and something for something fun to look forward to. Working on a book for more than 13 years is a strange experience. I'm not the same person I was then. My children have all grown up. My back got weird. The world is a different place. I can only imagine all the things that have changed for you. But completing Midnight Sun has brought uh, brought back to me those early days of twilight when I first met many of you. We had a lot of fun, didn't we? Throwing proms and hanging out in hotel rooms and reading on the beach while getting the most epic sunburns of our lives. We made hilarious t-shirts and fabulous websites. We found kindred spirits that are still in our lives now. I hope going back to the beginning of Bella and Edward's story reminds you of all that fun too. Stay tuned this summer. We have lots more fun things planned. Music, of course, contests, information on the book tour, and more will be posted on this page. I hope to see all of you soon. It's been too long. Uh, and then February 1st of this year, the paperback version of Midnight Sun was released. So I want to take a moment here and look at some of the FAQs. Uh, why did you want to tell the story from Edward's point of view? At the beginning, writing Edward's point of view was just a fun exercise. It was... I was struck one day with how boring the experience of Bella's first day of school was compared to what Edward had experienced. Wow, had, I'm reading this right now and Emma and I, on point. Uh, she had just gone to a new school. She'd seen a pretty boy. Edward had his whole life destroyed and very nearly committed mass murder. Wow. Girl, we were on it. <laughs> Uh, so I wrote the first chapter from his side, and yes, it was much more exciting. It was so thrilling to write, too. I put that chapter up on my website because I thought the readers would get a kick out of it. And because it was fun, I kept going with the project. Fun is my primary motivation. Uh, Midnight Sun has been about 13 years in the making. What inspired you to return to the story and publish it now? Um, she didn't really return. She never actually left. She didn't decide to finish it now. This is just how long it took to write. Um, it's hard to describe how frustrating it is to write a very long book where you can't create anything new, where everything is already scripted for you and you have no ability to go off that script. Fascinating. Um, though there have been a lot of stops and starts over the years, I never, I was never away from the manuscript for very long. Um, so life and death, uh, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Creating the version of the story. Let me go back to the characters in their purest form just who they were as people without any of the baggage from the movies or the fandoms, it made it easier for me to spend time with them again. How did you react to the Midnight Sun leak in 2006? How do you feel about this now? At the time, I was totally bewildered. I had no idea the manuscript had gotten out or how the project or how to protect it from future leaks. The confusion over what had actually happened made it hard to know how to proceed. I was already dealing with more pressure and scrutiny than I'd ever imagined with the books and the movies being so popular. And the leak was the proverbial straw on the camel's back. So I pushed Midnight Sun away and was afraid to touch it for a while. Now that experience seems so far away, it didn't upset me. I am sorry that it slowed down the process because it was hard on the readers who were waiting. But this book was going to take a long time regardless. It was just an incredibly slow novel to write. Well, girl, it was almost 800 pages. 
Um, will you write the rest of the books from Edward's perspective or from any of the other characters? No, I don't plan to ever rewrite another novel from a different perspective. That bums me out because that would have been exciting. Um, so she'll only write new things from now on. What would you say to those who have negative comments? Oh, she's talking about us. Uh, nothing is for everyone and it doesn't have to be. Love that. Well, and what I just saw is that for the two-year anniversary of Midnight Sun coming out, which was earlier this month, she released a special book playlist to accompany Midnight Sun. Oh, yes. That is in my next tab. Um, before we go to that, uh, what does the pomegranate on the cover mean? <laughs> It's literally pretty direct. It's a nod to the myth of Hades and Persephone. Yeah. So love that. Okay. And in in uh, keeping with the fruit theme, I guess, from Twilight with the apple. The Midnight Sun playlist is long. Yeah. So the Midnight Sun theme song is Crooked Ways by Motion City Soundtrack. And then uh, there are 25 songs on this playlist. Well, and I think what's interesting is the song that she calls out specifically is The Truth Untold by BTS. Because it, she says on her website that it so perfectly encapsulates Edward's emotional struggle throughout the first third of Midnight Sun. And the translated lyrics because it is in Korean, like, is really about, I like, being afraid to open up because of how much someone can hurt you mm-hmm. kind of a thing. But I think that's so interesting because I know for some writers as well, like, they listen to a lot of music while they're writing or they think of a lot of songs that go with the book and others who who can't because then that's too much influence isn't that wild that is wild the truth untold featuring steve aoki she has some wild music tastes and i'm into it i know it's like that millennial (laughs) millennial emo (laughs) it's like playlist where it's just absolutely all over the map if you put my phone on shuffle (laughs) you don't know what you're gonna get Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I shade that because this is exactly what mine would look like, too. Exactly. It's exactly the same, where the vibes are just all over the place, but it somehow perfectly encapsulates the mood. I do love the way that she uses music uh, with her books anyway, and, and the movies, of course, but yeah. Oh, the music, the music in the movies. So good. We could talk about for 10 hours. It's but we're not so going to. Good. We're not. We're going to talk about life, life and, and death. death. Okay. Y'all ready? Life and death. So uh, let's just, let's just dive into it. For fans of the worldwide phenomenon, Twilight comes a bold reimagining of Stephanie Meyer's novel, telling the classic love story, but in a world where the character's genders are reversed. There are two sides to every story. You know, Bella and Edward now get to know Bo and Edith. When Beaufort Swan moves to the gloomy town of Forks and meets the mysterious, alluring Edith Cullen, his life takes a thrilling and terrifying turn. With her porcelain skin, golden eyes, mesmerizing voice, and supernatural gifts, Edith is both irresistible and enigmatic. What Beau doesn't realize is the closer he gets to her, the more he is putting himself and those around him at risk. 
and it might be too late to turn back. This book. So I so <laughs> I will give I will give the listeners the same advice I gave you. Mm-hmm. This is a word for word recut of Twilight with some gentle modifications because Bella is beau. I would read the last four chapters. If you're curious, but you're like, I can't get through this, just read the last four chapters. That's pretty much everything you need to know. Or you're about to listen to Emma and I talk about it. You might not even have to. This was simultaneously the weakest and the best in my humblest of opinions. I I will say Midnight Sun is probably the most enjoyable read if you read Twilight. Life and Death is the most enjoyable on the like flip side because it's bad and standalone. Yeah, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. That's just, it's like a little bit unhinged. Oh, it's fully unhinged. This book is unhinged. So you have a lot. No, and well, and I, I had some difficulty with, honestly. So I would love to hear your thoughts because you flew through it. I I think the issue with me is that I read Twilight, you know, in 2000, whatever. I haven't read the series since other than to read Midnight Sun when it came out. So for me, picking up Life and Death and and reading a majority of Life and Death, it was a little too far removed. I needed to go back and read Twilight, but like I wasn't really willing to commit to going back and reading Twilight. That like I had a hard time matching up all the gender swaps and I like really struggled to wrap my head around some of the changes because you're like wait who is that I don't remember them in the initial book I certainly don't know who they're meant to be in the gender swap absolutely so first this uh, was a reimagining for the 10th anniversary of Twilight if I remember correctly yeah. Uh, yes. So this came out in October of 2015. So 10 years after Twilight, Stephanie published this piece, Life and Death, Twilight Reimagined. Um, it's very often paired with like a retouched version of Twilight as well. So there's it's like gently updated Twilight. There's not really too much change to it other than I believe... I know from Life and Death that that's one of the things I found most interesting. Or maybe it was, was it Midnight Sun where you actually find out the music that they were listening to? So the CD she gets from Phil in the original publishing of Twilight is just not listed. But then in in Midnight Sun, it's what, Muse or something like that? Yeah. So um, one of the really interesting things, either between Midnight Sun and then the 10th anniversary republishing of Twilight Stephanie fills in a lot of the gaps. So she's throwing in like, this is the band that she was actually listening to. This is the music on the radio. So a lot of the things you were left guessing for all of those years or that like really popular on TikTok to um, kind of be like, oh, I think it's this hypothesize about at some point she actually gave us. So that's a a fascinating thing. And life and death is usually paired with that reimagined or updated version of Twilight. So Stephanie got a lot of criticism over the years that the story of Edward and Bella only works because Bella is a girl. It only works because uh, Bella is, you know, like unable to blah, 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 blah. 
So she basically said, hold my Diet Coke and wrote the gender swapped version of this to be like, this could still happen if Edward and Bella, if their roles were reversed. Now, what I think, I don't know, I I, I think it would be, I guess it is like the power dynamic shifts, but it, it it's very interesting because there's still a lot of like, I take a lot of umbrage with the views of, of femininity and and what are masculine and feminine roles and power dynamics like there's there's still a lot of issues and this doesn't address any of them in the way that midnight sun does that kind of updates some of her thinking uh but i guess i guess to to throw out uh the most important thing here is every character in this book is gender swapped except for renee and charlie because you can change everyone in this book, but unless Bella and Bo have the same parentage, they are going to have different lives. So, you know, the thought is if Charlie is still Charlie, but Charlie is a, a <laughs> is a woman, uh, there are there are some assumptions that have to be made or that she is uh, um, assuming have to be made if you know that's the single parent who stayed behind in the small town so everyone down to uh jacob and jacob's dad like every pack member every character in the high school is gender swapped and to emma's point that will hit you with some confusion yeah especially if you haven't read twilight recently or you've only seen the films because there are a lot of peripheral characters that are in the books that are a lot more present that just don't exist in the films that just don't exist in the films and that also weren't super important in the first place and it makes it a little extra confusing um so we've got Bo swan uh edith cullen uh, Kareen, that is Carlisle. Archie, uh, that is Alice. Royal is, uh, um, my God. Rosalie. Thank you. <laughs> my brain stopped working. <laughs> Jessamine is Jasper. Eleanor is uh, Emmett. Emmett. Oh my gosh. And <laughs> oh, wow, they don't even they don't even call out uh, Esme's swap. Not even in this list. Do better, Wikipedia. Uh, and then Joss is the tracker vampire who, you know, changes everything, so to speak. Then, of course, we've got Julie Jules Black, which is Jacob. But then we have Bonnie Black, who is Jules' mom. So it also switches the entire uh, Quileute tribe into a matriarchal tribe, as opposed to what we see in the whole Twilight series. Um, and I will say Jules is also a little more... Uh, infantilized in this version perhaps but yeah so when I was reading well when I was reading through this I I found myself every time something happened wondering how is this going to play out in New Moon how is this going to play out in Eclipse how does this um, keep going through until you hit the end so listeners we get Bo he is basically Bella, uh, but basically the whole story goes pretty much the same. The whole story is the same, except for the end. Except for the end. So there are like, that's, this is, you only need to read like the last 
four chapters because that's where things actually get kind of interesting and that's where they deviate so this whole time because we won't slog through this because there's really not there's really nothing there uh this is twilight word for word reimagined slight differences slight nuances if you're planning a re-listen or a reread through the twilight book throw this at the end just as a little treat because to emma's point like you have to know this so we get to the end, and this is where we see that Twilight only happens as a series uh, if the, the roles are reversed. And that is because at the dance studio, so we make it to the end, Joss gets to Bo. And well, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to like, how do I want to, how do I want to say all this? Um, I'm like, spoiler, if you do want to read it and you want to be surprised. Skip like three to five minutes ahead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so um, at this point, uh, the the thing I want to point out, because like the, the, there's like misogynistic elements, you know, throughout all of them, but still even in life and death. Uh, well, that sounds too real. Joss turns. Well, Joss infects venoms, poisons. I don't know. Uh, Bo to the point beyond saving. Yeah. So we we're in the dance studio and the the reason I call it like a like like vague misogynistic undertones is because it is assumed that because Bo is a man, he is stronger than Bella was in the same role. So like this was honestly a little more graphic than the scene in Twilight because she breaks his arm, his leg, like he gets several bites. Like in, in in Twilight, it's presented a little more like James is having trouble controlling himself and his like carnal masculine urges are his downfall as well as Edward coming in time. But in this, because Bo is Bo, he seems to have like outsmarted the Cullens a little bit more. So they're a little further behind and... Um, and Joss is able to, I don't know, like abuse him more, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like when I read this scene, it was, like I said, it was a little more graphic because bones are breaking. The threats are a little more real. And all of this goes on for so long that the venom has more time to spread through Bo's body than it did in Twilight. So when Edith finally gets there and she's starting to suck out the venom like Edward does in Twilight, Archie, Alice, says, stop, you're killing him. And this is the point where Archie only sees two possible futures. So either she, Edith, sucks all of Bo's blood out and just mm -hmm. kills him, or she gives like a bite closer to the heart and turns him, and now they live together forever. And yeah. Edith having kind of the, so she does, turn bow so mm -hmm. twilight basically ends at that point right and what's interesting to me as well is like that's a big shift obviously like then that's it for the reimagining like they're together they're both vampires the end you can try to figure out how you think other things might happen there's no possibility for rigatoni right because that only worked that because bella was was the human, human. Right. And so what's interesting, though, is that that Meyer does add an afterword to life and death that just says, like, 
this shouldn't detract from the original story. Like this isn't a redo. It's just a total like what if this had gone down this way given the the swap. And I think that's interesting too because it's it's like, you know, fan fiction for her own book. Yeah. What if she did remove that huge obstacle from their love story right at the get-go? turn them both into vampires and it's more equal footing how might that change things it is very interesting though because it's not the same story then you know like you're under the impression when you're starting this that you are basically getting a word for word swap and this is like in my mind because with you sharing that afterward I'm like oh I guess this was not only a swap to say that like it happens the same either way. This was also the, what if I ended it this way where in my head, I was like, Oh, well, I guess based on her feelings of how, um, you know, people of different sex and gender operate in the world. This is just like, this is what happens if I swap these two characters, there is no other option is kind of how I read it. But with that afterward, it makes sense that it's like, I was just trying everything. Um, there is a funeral scene uh, where tends his own funeral, basically. There is a, a Quileute confrontation where they all show up and, you know, then they they see that Bo is still alive, but that he's been turned. And uh, it, it just kind of wraps up all of the rest of the series in, in one fell swoop, but it sanitizes like there is no need for the Volturi at all. There's no threat there, There, you know. So this this was a very interesting read. And I think this is kind of like a deep cut for the fan base. Um, it is truly, like you said, this is fan, this is basically fan fiction at this point. And you could probably find better fan fiction online. Probably. I just think, yeah, this was a really interesting take, especially for a 10th anniversary. One thing that I wanted to bring up during uh, Midnight Sun that I totally forgot about is by the end, my opinion of Edward was super low. Um, I was so angry by the end because you see throughout this whole book, the way that he has become so devoted to Bella and to have it wrap with like, as he's taking her to prom and portraying all of these happy things, he already knows he's going to leave her. And I hate that. I hate a liar. (laughs) So, so by the end, I was so upset just knowing that like his plan from the beginning was like, I have to run away. There was, there was no, it didn't matter that Jasper lost control at her birthday party. He was already going through the motions until he could naturally escape. And so I really hated that setup that it was just like the moment I see an opportunity, I'm running. I saved her life. I did all of this. She is this important person to me. And I'm running for the hills first chance I get because that's the only way I can save her so it was so tough because like all of this made him so sympathetic and so many good things to then just be like but I'm you know and I mean I get it it's the struggle of him wanting to save her humanity but dude at what cost (laughs) like and it seems like I mean like we said the writing's already on the wall so why Every time he's asking Alice for a vision in every book, it's he's always holding on to a glimmer of hope that Bella survives as a human. But that's once again, like one out of a hundred realities where she's a human. 
and like 98 of you know one of the realities she's dead and 98 of the remaining realities or 97 are her as a vampire so <laughs> like what's why what's the point yeah exactly when it seems like the future's kind of already set why go through that right and i hate that calculated level of dishonesty just because he thinks he knows what's right I had to get that out before I forgot. Uh, So back to life and death, your thoughts? Oh, I just think, I mean, for a 10th anniversary edition, you know, when big anniversaries come around for books, you could do a special edition, you could do whatever. I do think it was interesting that this was a a reimagining. I I agree. And I do, I do appreciate it. Yes, it was creative. It was a good way to like give the fans a little something, something, but I kind of like the work that she did on her website more. The idea of creating playlists and, you know, dropping quotes and all of these things. Like, I I think that's so much nicer. Like, I think I'd rather have had a piece of 10th anniversary merch than, than this. But also, I really liked it um, when you don't look too hard at it. When you don't look at, like, the yucky undertones of you know so 10th I agree with you completely for a 10th anniversary this was a like a fun treat and it has to be treated as such I as always my little English major brain wants to go into literary analysis mode always and when you do that with any of the Twilight books you're immediately going to poke your way into the hornet's nest of like societal expectations internalized misogyny like there's there's so many yucky bits Uh, But if you take a big step back and just have fun with it, this is a great opportunity to see what the other side would look like if their roles were reversed, because I do think that was fascinating the whole way through to see Edith instead of Edward, because there is a different energy that's, honestly, I think their relationship benefits a little better from the swap. You see a more fully fleshed out beau, like he is not quite, he's nowhere near as defeated as Bella is. And on the flip side, I really liked seeing this as a standalone piece. I really enjoyed seeing it end with him being turned and that being the only option as opposed to this world where we go into three following books of, well, what if I just try to save her humanity one more time? Um, I think that's I think that's really fascinating. And I still think I I think Twilight could have worked this way and I think they still could have had like a a throwaway, you know, second or like return to the series kind of piece where they do have issues with the Volturi, where there are other things happening. Like there's there's so much that could be seen. The only uh, difference here is that like, I guess the vengeance, that is life and death. And that takes us through the Twilight Saga and its auxiliary materials. What a wonderful and wild ride, y'all. What a saga. (laughs) What a saga. I really enjoyed diving into these books with a little bit more detail. I enjoyed diving into these books for the very first time and having some of the most amazing compatriots along the way. Emma, thank you for guiding me and also for putting up with all of my random text messages that were just like, what is going on? Who, why, how, huh? 
forever and always, <laughs> especially when you're sharing TikToks about Twilight. Yes, now my For You page is forever changed. Uh, We're approaching Twilight season as we head into fall. Oh, and how could we not mention um, last week was their anniversary, their 16th wedding anniversary. Just think about that for a minute, listeners. Bella and Edward have been married for 16 years. What to, To close us out, what do you think they're doing right now? Are they still in Forks? Are they elsewhere? What's going on? I'm going to be boring and say that I think they're doing the same old thing. I think they will have left Forks, but I think they will have come back. Do you think something happened to Charlie? Do you think he's out of the picture? Hopefully not. Hopefully not. Charlie forever. I. Oh, like they've hit the point where the, the suspicions are happening. I think, well, I think they would have been long past that I think they would have had to have left probably because they weren't getting older. They had finished high school. Like, were they going to go to college? Like, what was the situation? So I think they probably would have left Forks to eventually come back. Oh man, is at their 16th wedding anniversary, this is the time about the time when they're starting yeah, to I don't work know their way that, back to Forks. I don't know what that timing would be because you certainly can't have the same generation of people who knew you in high school and you're coming back to be in high school. So I'd be curious, like I didn't do the research of like how often, you know, they've been in Forks before. Was it like a hundred years ago? You know, I like, what's the, was it a generation ago? Was it like 50 years ago? I don't remember the specific timing, um, you know, between when the Cullens were first there and then when they come back, that's alluded to, you know, when Jacob is telling the history of his ancestors and so on. Um, so they probably would have left Forks. What do you think? Where do you think they are? Um, what do I think they're doing? Uh, part of me thinks they're still in Forks. Like they're just, I don't know, like they've found a way that between the the mystere of the Quillalutes and whatnot that people just don't notice them or, you know, Charlie's, Charlie's retired and they're taking him and Sue somewhere with them. Like I, I think because there was that pivotal moment where they brought Charlie into the fold in a way, um, there's no way that she's going to leave Charlie before he's gone. I feel. I think that's true. I think think that's true. There's some level of like, at some point they're going to have that conversation and be like, Hey, Charlie. Um, yeah, I think so listen, well, right in the way that they've worked around everything so that Charlie can be a part of their lives. Right. I think they're going to be around him until he's not with them any longer. Right. At some point they have the conversation of like, okay, Charlie, th- this is what we are. And uh, okay, Charlie, R- Rigatoni is our child. And like, you know, they they bring him in and either he moves with them or they kind of like fully retreat that the, the Cullens aren't in the town at all and people slowly forget about them, but Charlie's still going there to visit. Or like I said, they they take him with him. I, I don't think, I don't think with as much work as they did to keep Charlie in her life, they were going to leave. Uh, either without him or just at all. I I think there's going to be some like weird spell on forks, basically. Or maybe Jasper's just 
pulling double duty and he's making everyone think that they're older. That would be interesting. <laughs> that would be interesting. And I think if she had made it a little more fantastical instead of realistic, they could last a little longer everywhere they go. <laughs> yeah. And also that like the Cullens are like age flexible, whatever. So like right. they could be in high school, but they could be in college, but they could be early twenties. So I think maybe there's some leeway there. Right. Especially because Carlisle is like the father figure. He was 23 when he turned. <laughs> right. So like there's some creative freedom there where the ages don't necessarily reflect what they actually look like. Exactly. So, but with that, Emma, thank you so much for going on this journey with me, uh, for forcing me into loving Twilight. I could not have done it without you. You're welcome. (laughs) And also sorry that you are going to be stuck that every time I get a Twilight TikTok, I will be sending it to you. I'm happy to receive them. And if you're listeners if you're still listening to this episode thank you yes if you are still listening to us thank you but also is there a series you would like a retrospective of next while I have read a lot of things uh, much like there are so many movies that I have never seen there are so many book series that I have never touched um, or that I'd be happy to be the one to be the expert on and revisit Send us an email, professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. Let us know what series you'd like us to dive deep into. Uh, We would love to hear from you. So with all of that said, thank you all so much for listening and happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program. To learn about other evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.